All right, welcome, Chicago cohort. Welcome, those listening online. We're live. This is the School of Urban Missions, Bible College, and Theological Seminary. We're the Chicago cohort, and we have our students here ready for chapel to be poured into by our visionary leader, Joe Wyrostek. Today, we are learning about three problems with Christian millennials. So how have the pitfalls of our age, of our generation, crept into the church? And we're going to look at these three points today. Number one is a lack of discipleship. Stats say around 59% claim to be a Christian. That is of millennials. But only 33% say they are born again. And only 4% have a biblical worldview. That means over 85% of millennials in the church don't think like Jesus did in the Bible. That's pretty scary, is it not? Lack of biblical morals. 90% of millennials in church approve homosexuality, abortion, sex before marriage, tolerance of all types of sin, and all roads leading to God, basically religious pluralism. Third, a lack of biblical doctrine. 96% reject the exclusive claims of Jesus, the literal hell, the sole authority of Bible, and the role of the church in their lives. How many agree this is a problem? And so we want to see what the Word of God has to say. We want to hear what the voice of God is speaking to us today. So let's uh, get ready to welcome our speaker and visionary leader, Pastor Joe Y. Rustek. All right, let's all open up our Bibles to the solution as I get ready to address some of these situations. Open up to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 not only gives us the solution, but also tells us why there is a problem. We have a problem today because people are not doing what the Bible says we ought to do. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is addressing the issues of his day, but he also gives an insight to what's going to happen in the latter days. Let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Say these three words together of verse 2. One, two, three. Preach the word. One, two, three again. Preach the word. Thank you. Be prepared in season and out of season. Say these three words with me. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. Four technically, but thank you. With great patience and careful instruction. Now, Listen to as he moves from his present day, his conflicts of that time, to the future, which would include us. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So it's not that they're going to stop listening to quote-unquote Christians. It's not that they're going to quote-unquote stop going to church. It's they're going to switch the kind of churches they're going to and switch the preachers they're listening to. 
Look at verse 4. They will turn their ears away from the truth, and they will turn aside to miss, make-believe, things on the same level as the Avengers and the Power Rangers, excuse me. But you keep your head, talking to Timothy, his spiritual son, who he left to pastor the church of Ephesus, but you keep your head in how many situations? All situations endure hardships. Why? Because it's going to be hard to go against the flow not only of the pagan world, not only of the system of this age, the spirit of Satan in high places fighting against him, but you are going to endure hardships in the church against these teachers, against these kind of false believers. Endure hardships. Do the work of what? A author? Do the work of a conference speaker? Do the work of a dream builder? Do the work of what? An evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. That is our word. That is the solution to the three problems with Christian millennials. But now let's work towards that word. Let me first give my resume to address this situation to Christian millennials. Depending on where you put the date of what makes a millennial a millennial, I am either a millennial at the oldest end of the spectrum or I just missed it by being the youngest of the Generation X, which preceded millennials. But just to make it a good, clear number, let's keep it between 20 and 40. That is the largest generation on this planet right now with 75 million people outdoing the baby boomer generation. I am a millennial. In the last 15 plus years of my ministry, I have pastored millennials. And I say this only boasting in Christ, have the highest rate of growth and success among millennials. More than Judah Smith, more than Carl Lentz, more than Stephen Furtick. You want to know how I got that? Well, I just made up my own assessment and put myself at the top. Half kid. But here's how, I may, here's how I know I'm at the top. It's so simple. And I now challenge anybody else to say they can do better. I will give you credit. There may be others that do just as good, but no one that does better. Out of my 44 elders and deacons, 42 of them are millennials. That is 95% of my leadership, most of whom, 75 to 80% of them, one to the Lord in this ministry, are millennials. In our church of adults and above, we have 85% in discipleship. 85% of Metro Praise Internationals in discipleship. Pastor Jared, can you give a testimony to that? He sees the numbers, the attendance, the data of accounted for by name in categories of 101, 201, and graduated elders and deacons. This is not a rough estimate. I am not counting Easter attendees. 
Okay, we are a church of well over 200, had almost 340, uh, almost 350, over 340 yesterday. But this is a fact. 95% are millennials. We've won them to the Lord mostly. They are in our leadership. 85% are in discipleship. And our church on average has 10% called into the ministry. That means when you minus... Our children from our 225 average, you have 175. You then move away from that, the 60 to 70, let's just go 70 teenagers that we have in the church. With a 100 adults, 18 years and older, you have roughly 10 SUM students. That is what we have right now and at any given time. Just to now give you an idea of how this would look in any other church. Let's say there's a church in this neighborhood that says they have 5,000 people and half of them are millennials. What that would mean is that 95% of their leadership would need to be millennials to come higher than me. That would mean out of their 2,500, that would mean they would have to have at least probably 1,200 uh, in their discipleship. And that would mean out of their adult congregation, let's say 2,500 again is their adult congregation, they would have 250 pursuing the call of God. Carl Lentz can't even touch this. Judah Smith can't even touch this. Rich Wilkerson Jr. cannot touch this. And the problem is we keep listening to them like they're the role models of how to reach the millennial generation. That's part of our problem. This is Bible college, amen? I may preach like this every now and then on a Sunday, but I don't generally like to name names. I'm not here to put others down to build myself up. But you're being trained for ministry. You need to pick who you're going to follow as they follow Christ. You need to follow men and women like myself. And by the way, I'm not the only one here. I believe that there are other wonderful churches that score relatively just as high as we do. I believe all nations, and I'll name them for you since I've named the others, all nations church in New Orleans with Brother Anthony and Justice Freeman score high on this list. Raven team with Pastor Troy in New Orleans as well scores high on this list. For a large ministry, because sometimes people say, Joe, that works good when you're in the 200s. But when you get to the thousands, that will change. And I tell them, the devil's a liar. He told you that. Send it back to hell where it came from. If a cult called the Jehovah Witnesses can teach 10 million people to be Jehovah Witnesses because that's what makes them a Jehovah Witness, why can't disciples of Christ build the church on disciples of Christ and have them do the discipleship work of Christ? Come on, somebody. That's why we put discipleship over membership and to hell with everything else that takes away from that. It's a simple principle. Jesus gave it. Don't change it. So once again, here's a large ministry that has numbers just as high as this. IHOP with Mike Bickle. High numbers of millennials in their leadership. And some people will say this is not needed to be fruitful because you need the other generation as well. So this number may not be as significant to other churches, and that's great. We need more gray-haired people, and I have a lot of gray hair now. Uh, but, you know, you got to keep these numbers steady. You should always have 80% more in discipleship, and at least 10% of your church should be called into ministry, being trained. And by the way, I was so encouraged when I heard about one of the early Pentecostal churches being established after Azusa Street here in Chicago. Guess what their heart was? The pastor said, as long as I'm here, I want 10% of my church being sent out into the mission field. There used to be churches that thought like this. Instead of setting building fund goals or just Easter egg drop goals, goals from helicopters, they actually set goals about how much the disciples 
disciples they wanted to make and how many people they wanted to send into missions. So now I put my resume out there. So if anybody watching this video or wants to challenge me and say I'm not successful, let them put this in their religious pipe and smoke it. I have a church built on millennials from the ground up, one to the Lord. We have a church of disciples of millennials. Those here today are all millennials. And I married a millennial, and she went to Bible college, and she's now my co-pastor. Come on, somebody. This is all that I've known in ministry is millennials. I love grandparents, and they're welcome to be here. Out of our 340 that we had yesterday, there was maybe 20 grandparents here, maybe 25. And, uh, all, of course, we have tons of children, maybe 100 children, 50 to 70 youth. You know, they had 77 at a special outreach. But once again, this is our main bread and butter. These are those that are elders and deacons in our church. They range from police officers to nurses to teachers teachers, to construction workers, to plumbers, to stay-at-home moms. Are you listening? We reach the whole entire range of the spectrum. We reach young professionals. We reach common everyday folk without uh, much of an education, but they work hard. Our calling is to reach every and all people, but the ones that we have found the most success with, the ones that God has called me to reach are Christian millennials. So I'm not some outdated old person here trying to say something that I don't know anything about, nor am I some unsuccessful person, because I could be a millennial and be unsuccessful at reaching my peers. That is not the truth. We are here on the success of Jesus Christ and his pattern that has worked for us. But we have a problem in these 75 million people's lives. We have a big problem. And the stats keep coming. When George Barna, the number one Christian statistician, started coming out with these, they doubted him. Then when Lifeway started coming out with these stats, they took it a little bit more serious. When the guy who wrote the book, The Great Evangelical Recession, came out with his, it began to be noticed by denominations. Now, even Pew Research and secular organizations like Slate Magazine, I believe, also put up the publishings. This is now undeniable. We have lost the worldview war with millennials. We have lost the worldview war. They do not share, your generation does not share the worldview of the Bible. That is true. Statistically, it is around 4%. And George Barna, on new research that he is doing, you can find him on Facebook as well. He's going on all the radio shows right now, podcasts as well. And he is defending this and coming out with a whole lot of new resources. So don't just take my word for it with all the people they've surveyed. He says, you cannot question our methodology. So often when these were coming out, some of the pastors were saying, well, these statisticians are too hard on these poor millennials because when they're doing their statistician work over a Christian worldview, the questions are too deep. Uh, the Trinity, are they same in substance or only in essence? You know, is the essence the same or the substance? You know, and oh, so deep. The hypostatic union, was he eternally begotten by the Father or was he only begotten by the Father at the incarnation? No, those weren't the questions. George Barna goes over the questions. You know what the questions were? Do you believe in God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God? Do you believe that the Bible is the only infallible rule 
for people's lives. Inspired, in other words. Do you believe in sin? Do you believe that Jesus' death and atonement on the cross is the only resolution for sin? Do you believe in a final judgment? He, you can go on his video, you can go on his Facebook right now. He literally says exactly what I'm saying. He says, guys, these are Sunday school questions. Sunday school questions. They were asking people between the ages of 18 and 20 years old, uh, 20 and 40 years old, 18 and 36-year-olds, just depending on where you're placing the, uh, the millennial age group at, and only 4% of them, that's 4 out of 100, had a Christian worldview. And remember, a worldview is how we see the world. It's the lenses that we look at the world through. This is not even deep theology. 96% of millennials don't look at the world the way the Bible teaches us to look at the world in the most fundamental ways. That there's a God, there's a heaven and a hell, Jesus is unique, only resolution for sin. There's a final judgment. You don't get in by good works, you get in by grace. Sunday school stuff. Now, but here's the bigger problem, and this is where we're going to go through the millennial issues. The three main ones is that, number one, they lack discipleship because 59% of them claim to be Christians. So watch this. Watch this, guys. And by the way, from what I understood, all of the questions a Roman Catholic, a Lutheran, anybody else could have answered the same exact way as they ought to have. I don't even think there was any uh, distinctions in the Christian worldview. Maybe they're one by faith, but even Catholics place a high role on faith, okay? They could have answered this. So that means, listen, if 59% claim to be Christian, how many should walk out of that survey and have a Christian worldview? How many? 59%. 33 say 33% said they were born again. So they went beyond just nominal Catholic belief or Lutheran belief and just saying I go to church every now and then. Not to pick on the Lutherans, but you know, these kind of more traditional, like th- these 33% went a step further and said, Oh, I know the lingo. Oh, yeah, I've been born again. I know that. Come on, I know the gospel. 33%. Once again, just to take that number as 33% born-again Christians took the survey, how many should have walked out and affirmed a Christian worldview? How many percent? 33%. 33%. 33% say they're born again. Go and take your Sunday school test. You walk out, 33%, but only 4%. So what does that mean? What does that mean? That means that 30 3% of Christians are here in, uh, of the generation of millennials are in church out of their total generation, 33% of them. That means one-third. That means uh, one out of three, 33% is a third, right? Okay, just making sure I'm doing my math right. 33 times three is 99, right? Okay. Out of those going to church, those in that group, Eight out of 10, 85% have the wrong view. That's why only 4% have a Christian worldview. That is the difference between 33% and 4%. That is an 85% difference. That means eight out of 10 Christians going to church 
going to Hillsong, New York, going to wherever they're going, eight out of ten of them have the wrong world view. Why is that? Lack of discipleship. Most churches that even implement discipleship, let me back up and say this, George Barna, the great uh, Christian, Christian statistician, also wrote a book on discipleship, Growing True Disciples. I used to teach it here at SUM with our um, church planning class. And I got the stats. You can find them on our website. Just put in uh, discipleship. He was writing a book on discipleship in the modern-day church. You know, all ages, all generations. Just is the church doing discipleship? There were so few actually doing it that he got discouraged and almost gave up on the whole project, not even to write the book. He couldn't even find enough churches to survey and interview that were doing discipleship to see how well it was working or not working. At the end of his rope, I believe this is in the prefix or chapter one, he actually says that God did a miracle and brought him one pastor and another, and then right at that last moment, he found a good group of them to start doing his surveys with. Out of those, the high number was around 20% involvement of discipleship. So you're talking in the greater, this is so sad, but it's redonkulous. Sometimes I have to laugh because we, we wonder why there's only 4% of 20 to 30 to the 20 to 40 year old gap that has a Christian worldview. We wonder why this is the problem. We have failed as the church. We have failed 85% of them that are born again. So now he's interviewing them. So even if you, I mean, most of the churches in America don't even do systematic discipleship as Jesus taught, to be accountable, to go out and win souls and make disciples. What was the first thing he said to Peter? Peter, come follow me and I'll make you a conference attendee. Is that what he said? Peter, come follow me and I'll have you go to all the good concerts. Only $35 starting. Well, where is my $35 seat for outcry? On the floor? Like every, no, no, $35 seat is there. Oh, yeah, so I want to take my family of seven? Or oh, maybe they'll give me the deal that Disney World does. My two-year-old can get in for free, but everybody else, $35. Get ready to pay two, $300 to go do what? To go to a secular event? No, to do something that the Bible commanded us to do, to worship. Worship. We wonder why we're so broken. He didn't say to them, come follow me and I'll make you conference and concert attendees. He said to Peter, day one, come follow me and I will make you what? A fisher of men. That's it. You couldn't go down to the next Christ down the road, the next rabbi like Jesus down the road and give up on Jesus and go, I love this Jesus thing. I just think Jesus is too radical. Is there another Messiah lowering the bar a little bit for me? Doesn't he know I'm so shy? I don't want to do the work of an evangelist. Doesn't he know I'm so wishy-washy? I don't want to be committed. Doesn't he know that I'm a hipster and I want to be cool? And it's in vogue to support all the transgender, homosexual, bisexual things right now. And if I go to Columbia and tell them a biblical worldview of sexuality, I'll get made fun of. Doesn't he know the pain? 
the suffering I'll endure. So I want to go to a church that doesn't talk about it. And you look at these millennial pastors that are put out in the forefront. They will hashtag everything but something that has to do with the biblical worldview confronting the world. Insect slavery, like we didn't know it. Thank you very much. You know, in this, free water for this, Dofar, you know, this. But when was the last time you saw them hashtag, end abortion now? When was the last time you saw them hashtag, one race, God's creation, human race? Come on, somebody. When was the last time you heard them hashtag this right here? Uh, you know, uh, God's creation, male, female. No, because they're trendy. They want to be the next one with their book on Oprah Winfrey. They want to be the next one to have their talk show. They want to be the next one to have something that the world loves. What did Jesus say? The world loves its own. The world can't hate you. You're of the world. It hates me. Please get that scripture for me. It hates me because I tell them they're of the I tell them of their sin. The world loves its own. How many believe that? Today you got to make a decision in your heart. Do you want discipleship or do you want consumerism? Because that's the reason why we're in this mess right now. People stopped preaching the word. John 15, 18, go there with me quickly, and if I have time, I'll go back to 2 Timothy and work through that word. John 15, 18, thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you. John 15, 18. Don't you love technology? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Here we go. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me, what? First, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world because I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. I love what Paul Washer said. He said, we have this romanticized idea of persecution. We see the martyr in the Roman history in our imagination. He's crying out to Jesus, forgiving his enemies. He's being stoned or burned alive. And we look at it and we disconnect the reality from how he got there and we miss the suffering that we're going to do now and will come upon us. See, the Romans had no problem with Christians and their God. The problem that they had is when the Christian says, our God is the only God. That's what made them upset is when they pointed to their idols and says, these are no gods. You can't preach like that without offending people. I'm not talking about Westboro Baptist, God hates fags and these despicable things that they say. We should never say that. And I feel bad even mentioning it, but, you know, that word's not a necessarily a bad word. It's a derogatory word, but that is terrible. We don't talk like that. But that's not why these disciples were persecuted. 
They weren't protesting and saying God hates people. They were simply saying truth statements. This is not a God. The one God has no image. This is not the truth. Jesus is the truth. And for that, they were killed. Have you you seen the video of the IHOP prayer workers in San Francisco being chased out of the district there where the the Castro district? All they were doing there was playing and worshiping God on the street corner. They are like us, non-judgmental towards the lifestyle, but they were just representing Christ. I don't even know if they got to preaching yet. And they drove them out. You remember seeing that video. They drove them out, hurling insults at them. Shame on you. And all you have to do, watch this, watch this, guys, is just loosen the law up a little bit, not a big step, just a little bit, where you can punch a bigot. You can take the property of a bigot. You can take away the children from a bigot. All you have to do is just raise it up that high. And now label you as a bigot, and it's okay for you to be slapped in public. Now it's okay for your property to be taken from you, because shame on you. Shame on you teaching your children that. Shame on you. Shame on you for threatening people with hell. Shame on you. Shame on you for saying that this man is a bad man because he loves another man. Shame on you. You don't deserve to be an American. You don't deserve to have your free speech. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve to be a parent. All you have to do is just raise it just a little bit, and now the Christian being persecuted isn't being romanticized. He's being ridiculed by the mob, looked down on as a Neanderthal. Look at these Christians coming around here. Telling us Zeus doesn't exist. Telling us that their God raised from the dead. He was crucified. What kind of God dies in the battle like that? This, he didn't even raise a sword. He was captured. There's no God. And now they come and they take our business away. They take away the reason why people travel here to see Artemis. They take away our business. Get him. Tie him up. Take their children from them and give them to their uncle because the uncle is a good Roman citizen. Take them all. We'll end it now. Take their, their leaders. Take those ones that are doing most of the preaching. Take them. Beat them. Beat them in front of the rest of them and see if they'll learn. String them up naked. Take the cat of nine tails. Whip them like you did their master. Christians went underground for hundreds of years. You don't even know your history if you've forgotten that. That cute little symbol of the fish, this cute little symbol of the fish was an underground message to know where Christians were meeting. If you were talking in a public space and you wanted to know where church was because you were traveling through Corinth and your hometown was Ephesus and you knew that the church was here somewhere, but you didn't know where they were meeting because it was illegal. If you were talking to someone that seemed to be brightening your day, seemed to have that confirmation of a Christian, you would mark with your foot one way like this, that half of the fish with your foot, and if they marked it back the other way, you would know that was your brother. Where is church tonight? 
Where are we meeting? And they're still doing that right now in China. They're still doing that in North Korea. In the concentration camps of North Korea, where it's been said that they are eating their children at times, those who have escaped have told us many of the dissenters in the North Korean concentration camps are Christians. Read the website. Subscribe to it, Open Door. And I just gave away my persecution bracelet. I have to recop today. Follow these Christians who suffer. We have become snowflakes melted by the sun of adversity. It's time we become rocks and pillars in the house of God. He said to Peter, his disciple, I will build my church with you and the gates of hell will not prevail. Who in this generation will meet me down at the gates of hell and plunder it to populate heaven? Who will join with me in the generations before us, like John Wesley, who would often preach five times a day, and when they kicked him out of the backslidden churches, he went out to the fields and the highways and the byways and started the Methodist movement. Who will join with us to preach the gospel and make disciples? Come on, somebody say, I will. We need to bring back the cost of discipleship to the church. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. That's the call of discipleship. The passage here in Timothy says it clearly. There will come a time where they will not want to hear sound doctrine anymore. They will not want to be corrected or rebuked. Just give me the sugar. The Bible tells me as a preacher what is the recipe to give you every week. I am to give you one-third correction, one-third rebuke, one-third encouragement. God have mercy if I ever leave out a component. You ever thought about leaving sugar out of cookies? I'm not talking about that diet stuff. I'm talking about the real stuff. You ever thought about leaving out dough from a pizza? And don't tell me about that cauliflower stuff. Come on. You ever thought about it, leaving an engine out of a car? This is a key component. Correcting steers people along, along the right path when they go off. Rebuking is the stop sign, the red light. Stop it now. Correcting is that gentle process. Rebuking is a little bit more forthright. Encouragement means to build up and impart courage. That is what the gospel preacher does. He doesn't trade the rebuke and the encouragement for apple pies every day. I've got to give you some meat here and protein. I've got to give you some vegetables and sustenance of vitamins. And yes, there's encouragement along the way. He said there'll be a time when they'll turn away from this. And instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a small number of teachers. Is that what it says? These guys will be unpopular. Nobody will like them. They'll just be the nobodies. No, they'll gather around them what? A great number of teachers to say what? To say what Jesus says? No, to say what their itching ears want to hear. To be tickled in other words. To be lied to. But not a lie that's so bold that you know it's a lie. Right? Not a bold lie, because who believes that? Satan is a smart liar. Never underestimate your enemy. 
He's a defeated foe, no authority over the believer, but he is a foe, he is a lion, and he's roaring and he wants to devour. He has authority. Jesus has it to give back to us, but until that time, he has dominion. That's why in Ephesians it lists out four different realms that he rules in, and we are to stand our ground against him. Are you listening? You go back to the Garden of Eden, his lies are subtle. I guarantee even some of you as Bible college students, you can't even count the first two lies. The first lie is hath God said. Right there, he's getting her to question, has God said something? She knows right well what God said. But his first lie is to get her to question if God said. Then within that same breath, you may not eat of all the trees. Did you catch that? Right there, two lies. Hath God said you may not eat from all the trees? It was only you can't eat from one. But you notice how he slithered in. Slithered like a snake. Now, he had legs at that time, but he was still a little slitherly walking snake, like a little lizard. Slithering in with his lies. And so how does it start? And I'll just stop here today. We'll go on a series on this. This will be our series. God is speaking. Amen? I believe God is speaking. I don't come here with notes. I just come here with the direction the Lord gave me. He slithers in. And what does he tell those a little bit older than me that are starting off their churches in the early 2000s? We're losing this generation. True. They don't want to come to church anymore. True. My friends didn't want to go to church. Generation X is not much better than uh, millennials, but millennials far worse in this area. Watch. We got to get them in. Well, good ideas could work. Let's do what David Wilkerson did to get them in. Go out to the streets, do the work of an evangelist, go to the highways and byways, preach the gospel to them, take time and disciple them, build relationships with them, let our love win over their hard hearts. Sound like good ideas right there, but that wasn't the ideas. Church on the Move with Willie George said, let's start 180 centers, Tulsa, Bible Belt. We're losing them. Let's get them back in. Let's incorporate the arcade into the church. Let's incorporate the gym into the church. Let's incorporate the concert into the church. Maybe there's a time for some of those things. I get it. It's a community center as well as a church. But hold on. We'll do this and call it service. Bring down this, the worship from 30 minutes to maybe 10 minutes. Bring it down from Jesus, we love you, the blood, cover me, forgive me, to this motivational stuff we hear like on Christian radio. Give them some K-love stuff. Give them some poppy. You know, it's all about you. You're going to make it. You're going through a hard time. God still loves you. There you go. And let's keep this thing going, and let's leave out the deep stuff Let's leave out the biblical words like sin, redemption, justification, hell. Let's leave out those words and let's substitute them with words that they can understand. Now, granted, at this same exact time, the parents of those kids want them in private schools, want them to go to Ivy League colleges, Bible Belt suburbs, you understand what I'm saying, mostly Anglo. They want them to achieve the highest level of education, but in the church, water this thing down and treat them like they're imbeciles. But the moment they show up to college, they will get rocked harder by science than they have ever thought. 
In the philosophy class, they will get spanked on day one. In the biblical studies world religion class, they will be confused by the end of the week after they've learned about their first Hindu god that died and rised. They'll know no different. That's why Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis wrote the book Already Gone. You thought you lost him at college. You lost him in junior high and high school ministry. They watered it down so much, and I watched it begin to happen. I watched them as they called me in to be the youth speaker. And I would come to those events. They would be packed out with their teenagers. One of them had a skate park in their, in their church parking lot. Nothing wrong with having fun at church. But when church is church, things should change. I had more respect at public inner city schools. And I say that only because sometimes people think inner city schools are the worst kinds of schools. But to me, they're oftentimes the suburban schools. But let me just say this. This place was worse behaved than any place I've ever been. And it was a suburban white church. They didn't stop talking the entire time I was preaching. I only got 15 minutes to say what I had to say. It was disgusting. And now that youth pastor doesn't even serve God anymore, divorced his wife. Jesus said, you can build a house on sand if you want, but it won't last long. How long is our generation going to last with that uh, 33% Christian born-again worldview? What do you think the kids of... Uh, the millennials are going to be raised with. Come on. But we have the greatest opportunity in front of us. It's not all bad news, is it? You're here. You weren't supposed to be here. You were supposed to be offended by my jokes. You were supposed to be a snowflake that couldn't take it. You were supposed to be one of those memes or one of those videos that they say about hipsters that don't like hard work and don't like to be confronted and need a safe space. How have you now defied the statistics? How have you become different than them? Because Christ is in you. You're more than a conqueror. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You can do all things through Christ who has strengthened you. And so, friends, I ask you to look at me now and hear me when I tell you, you are not the first generation that's been handed a terrible lot from the church generation before you. You are like those in the mid-1800s who were handed a backslidden church of American colonialism that had lost its way to slavery and to greed, heading towards the Great Depression of the 1900s. But during that time, God raised up the Methodists, the Jonathan Edwards, the Charles Finneys. He raised up a Bible Belt preaching revival with these horseback riding circuit preachers. You're not the only generation to be handed a bad lot. In the 50s and the 60s and 70s, the church had become irrelevant to the generation of the drug and sex culture. But hippies began to get saved and began to defy dress codes, coming to church barefoot in shorts. And they began to meet at the beaches and at their high schools. And God used them to start movements like Calvary Chapel, with well over 700 churches around the world, was started in that generation. I say, God, make us again like Chuck Smith and Greg Laurie and the Calvary Chapel brothers who went verse by verse by verse, wearing their California T-shirts and shorts and sandals, but they preached the gospel and transformed the world.
You're not the first generation to be handed a bad lot from the church before you. Be an answer to the problem. Go back to this scripture and see yourself as Timothy. That's why Timothy's one of my favorite books, First and Second Timothy, because I see myself as that young man. Even now, you know, as I have five kids and the gray hair is, I think, outnumbering the black of my hair. I mean, I was, God just got my hair cut last Monday, and I was looking at the floor, and I said, oh, no, the grays are winning. The grays are winning. I never saw myself as that guy, but here I am. But here is the charge to us in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. I mean, this is epic. I mean, this is 300 talk here. I mean, this is where you use your imagination. This is where now you can see angels descending into this room, clothed in battle warfare. The Holy Spirit resting upon us. And the presence of God and of Christ Jesus are here. He will judge the living and the dead. And you can see in this room a sense of judgment behind me, a throne with the Father and a throne with the Son, and the Holy Spirit ushering from him, coming to us, the angels around us, since we're surrounded by so great of witnesses. And next to those angels are all the disciples who have gone before us, martyrs and preachers and theologians. And you can see Paul preaching, I give you this charge. (sighs) Preach the word. You can just see in the spiritual, grabbing the word of God as the sword of the spirit, rushing into the gates of hell. Preaching as a man on fire or a woman on fire and telling the world, watch me burn. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season, just like a pop quiz in one of your classes, right? Be ready and correct. Guide them. Guide your brothers and sisters here, first and foremost, in the house of God, and then go out and guide this world. Rebuke them. Rebuke me in my sin. Rebuke your brother in his sin. In love, the Bible says open rebuke is better than hidden love. That's why we love this generation. We love them more. What would you rather have, a doctor that lied to you about your cancer and let you die suddenly, or a doctor that warned and rebuked you and gave you a cure? Many of our millennial preachers are lying to this generation, and yet they have the great crowds and the money they give them. People are spending money on lies, spending money on poison. What we give is the free cure, amen? You may not like us, but it is the cure, and it's free. And then we encourage. We tell them you can. With God, without God, it's impossible. But with God, I am possible. The great I am is possible to do anything inside of you. You're not the first ones to be intimidated by the call of discipleship. Don't you remember the conversation with Jesus and the rich man? Sell everything you have and come follow me. The Bible says he walks away sad. What do the disciples do? They freak out. They say, Jesus, this guy actually liked us. He doesn't want to hurt us. He's a good guy. He's got lots of money. He can join our movement. And you just told him to sell everything. That is like impossible, Jesus. That's crazy talk. That's cult talk, Jesus. And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. With God, all is possible. 
Because they said after that, and I don't want to forget this, they said, well, then who can be saved? Jesus, who can be saved? If that man's not saved, God, I don't know if I can be saved. But he said, no, this is impossible. You can't save yourself. But I'll save you. I'll save you. And he says, do this with great patience and careful instruction. Have I always been patient? <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. Have I always been patient with this process? No, I haven't. You guys have even seen me repent. Joe B has seen me repent. Ulysses has seen me repent. Ashley has seen me repent. You know, I mean, it's just I have to grow up so I can go up to another level. There is no excuse to trade the anointing for anger as Moses did, out of anger striking the rock and losing the anointing to be their leader in the promised land. It's not worth it. So don't get so fired up that you get angry with them and treat them harshly. Treat them as you would want to be treated. And I know I would want to be told the truth, so that's why I tell them the truth. But be patient with them. Be patient. And that's why we do see so much success. Amen? Every one of you are a testimony to that. We've been patient with you, haven't we? We've been very patient with you. And our discipleship, the 101 and 201 could be done relatively in about six months. Most of you took a year to two years. Some of you are on the five-year plan. I don't know. God's going to speak to you and help you graduate, but we've been patient. So be patient with them. If God's forgiven you, you forgive them with careful instruction. Do you notice what I said wasn't just hot air? Pull up your pants. Stop acting like that. You're dumb. No, did I just preach like that? What I gave was careful instruction. Here's how we make the disciples. Here's how we distinguish the truth. Here's how we recognize lies. Here's how we stand and be relevant. I have no problem with us playing video games at church, basketball goals. A, a community center is a part of the church. That's always the way it's been, church and community, fellowship. But when it comes to what we call preaching, when it comes to what we call ministry, we know the difference, and we never lower the standard. It doesn't matter if I wear a suit or if I wear shorts. I preach the word, correct, rebuke, encourage, right? Careful instruction, sound doctrine. We'll get into those things later. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this awesome day. I know I spoke a lot of myself, Lord, but I want to once again reiterate that all glory goes to you. And wherever I have failed and made mistakes, God, you have been merciful, and I thank you for it. And so, Lord, I ask that you will prepare us as a cohort, not only here but around uh, the world with SUM, wherever they watch this video or through others watching this video, that, God, we would raise up and be lights to this generation, salts to the earth, that we would be disciples that make disciples, God, uncompromising, unwavering, full of love, full of compassion, full of truth for your glory, for your name's sake, in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. I love you.